was Michael rapping? Was he really? I just came in on the tail end of that. I'm like, what in the world? He has talent. I don't know. You jumped out of airplanes with the army. You can rap. You just, you can do everything. So he's actually here in the service. So I, I commend you, Michael. You are a man of many talents. So that's amazing. I don't think I could have done that. Uh, so creative. So uh, you were trained by the army. Is this true? Or yeah, he's not talking now to me. So. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38, uh, Luke chapter 2. Um, if you're going to be coming to the uh, Revelation study on June, January the 10th, January the 10th, 630 to 730, uh, you need to sign up, uh, and we have uh, over 200 or 325 people signed up to be here on Sunday nights. Um, we can house 350, so there's a, f- and I don't know how many people signed up after the last service, so there's a limited amount of people that can come. So we had, we had at the last service like 25 more seats if you'd like to attend. But you do need to sign up because I need to give you the notes. I PDF all the notes to you so you can follow along as we uh, go through the study. Uh, and we have uh, several hundred people online that are going to be watching uh, all, all over the place. And so it should be a lot of fun. I think it's a timely topic, uh, and it should take us about 30 weeks to do the introduction, so I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, Marty Humor, if you're, few, if you're new this morning, like, yeah. Um, no, it takes us about 30 weeks to do this study, so uh, your only assignment is during Christmas, read the book, right? From beginning to end. Uh, uh, so also, if you are new this morning, haven't stopped by our visitor's booth, they would, ladies out there would love to talk to you, introduce you to the church in uh, just a minute, and uh, they have a gift for you as well. Uh, and then if you're online, just hit the button, say you're new, and uh, we will contact you and, and welcome you uh, to the body. Uh, sadly, last night, uh, our brother uh, Greg Boros was taken into God's uh, presence. Uh, and so we pray for his wife, uh, Elise, uh, and his little boy, Paul, who's six. Uh, and he had a heart transplant several years ago, uh, and has, there's a shelf life on a heart. And he's, and he's been in a lot of pain, had a lot of struggles over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, and uh, now he's, he beholds Christ face to face. That's an awesome thing, but uh, s- sad for uh, his wife and his son and family. And so uh, I know many of you have ministered to them over the years as he's been down this hard road. Uh, but, but now we, we need to step up, as I know you will, and minister to um, Elise and Paul and the family uh, and, and care for them. Uh, and so let's uh, pray for that, that young lady uh, and her son, especially as we come to God's word today, because uh, we're going to be talking about a widow today, and it's kind of divine timing. So let's pray. God, we, uh, we give you uh, our brother Greg, who now sees you face to face, and all that you promised in the scriptures uh, concerning trading this old body for a new body uh, is his today as he stands with you uh, and worships, worships you his first Sunday uh, home. And uh, how magnificent it must be to be free from pain, suffering, uh, and to, to have the mind of Christ uh, and to be reunited with great saints of old. Uh, it must be an amazing day, your first day in heaven. But we pray for his wife and his son and family members uh, that your peace would rest upon them. Uh, and you are the Prince of Peace. Uh, you came 2,000 years ago to bring peace. 
between man and God through your sacrifice. And uh, may his wife and his son and his family members and friends sense that peace in a profound way today that can't be expressed to another human. They just know you showed up and minister to them. May they sense that today. And may we listen to the scriptures today. Uh, may, not, may we not be distracted, but to learn what you would want us to know uh, in the times in which we live so we can live for you. And we're careful to pray for those that are online or in our body today that don't know the Christ. Uh, plow the heart and plant the seed of the gospel that springs forth to life eternal in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, hope, I think, as I look at my culture, is in short supply today. Uh, and uh, I am one who uh, studies scripture and studies uh, lots of things. Um, but I, I study my culture because I have to speak to my culture, especially living in D.C. Uh, and I came here 12 years ago to make some kind of impact uh, in, in the lives of people uh, in this area to, to hopefully have an impact in a greater way uh, in lives uh, all over the place. And we do. as a, It's a unique church because a lot of our people move every year. We lose 20% of our membership. And so we do impact people here for Christ uh, for the moment, and then God moves them out. Uh, and, uh, and so it's awesome to be at a church like this where the Word of God is taught, but it's also a complex time in which we live. Uh, because if you look at any year of your life, uh, this was a bizarre one, was it not? Uh, I saw a, a, a joke the other day, um, the Back to the Future, uh, you know, those shows uh, with the special car and you dial in a number and you go to a certain year and all of a sudden you take off and you're in that year. You've seen the movies? Yeah. Um, you have. Thank you. And, it, and, there, and, 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 a, and a guy was talking to Marty, telling him, you know, because uh, he was spinning the dial on the car and it was, it was on 2020. Uh, 20, 20. <laughs> and he, he said, uh, skip that year. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to show up then. It's like, oh my Lord. I mean, when you look at 2020, it's like, oh my, unbelievable, hasn't it been? I mean, there's been like no year in my whole life like this. And I've lived through the 60s, riots on campuses, the Vietnam War, the Iran you know, hostage crisis when I was in college. I mean, you've seen all this stuff. And this, this is no year like this year. Uh, and uh, I am glad I'm saved. Because I have hope. I have hope. But I look at my culture, I can think of a lot of reasons why you should not have hope. Because as a thinking person who's listening to the information and looking at the data, I'm like, is my constitution, is it going to make it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope. But when I look at what's going on, I mean, if all those signed affidavits are true and all those people are telling the truth, I mean, the election, there was no election like that in my entire life. Was that fraud? If that's fraud, it's on a major scale, and it tells me the corruption is shocking. It's, it's unbelievable. And so that's kind of unnerving. Because if my vote doesn't count, because it can, be, it can be overturned by a machine or whatever, then I'm thinking logically about it as a man, like, why vote? This leads to hopelessness. But then I'm a Christian, full of hope. But I look at my culture, and I think, wow. Man, it's messed up. It's dysfunctional. Um, COVID, how's it, how's it, how have you navigated with that? It's been exciting, hasn't it? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, I'm reading that the micronic size of a COVID virus can go through most masks, and I'm thinking to myself as a logical mind, why am I wearing this thing? You feel the same way? No amens? I know it's not a Pentecostal church, but <laughs> I'm just kind of thinking about it. I mean, you know, fraud, no fraud, you know, coronavirus, etc. And uh, so, so they come out with an immunization. Uh, this, I'm pre prepping for my sermon in case you're wondering what I'm talking about. Um, uh, 
they're coming out with the immunization to get a shot, but then I read, you know, 30% of the people aren't going to take the shot, okay? And then I read on the weekend that one of our uh, politicians is proposing we all carry cards to say you got the shot, and if you don't have the card, you can't buy, sell, or trade. He needs to come to Revelation. <laughs> kind of sounds like what the Bible's talking about. But anyway, so, I mean, for First Thessalonians chapter 2, or 2 Thessalonians 2 verses, uh, well, 3 and 4, talks about at the end of time, it will be lawless. Nah, I think we're there. It's unbelievable. It, when it, well, I look at this and it's like, I, I, hope, it seems hopeless. Where Now our culture, the ends justify the means, and it doesn't matter what you do. As long as you get the means that you want ideologically, you're good. And I'm thinking, what about truth? It seems like hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, do you ever feel like hopeless? I mean, I get there occasionally, but then I think, oh, no, I know, I know God, and I know the scriptures, and I know what's coming, and I'm excited. Uh, and so if you walk out of here depressed today, it is not my problem, okay? Because <laughs> I am here to give you hope, and the hope comes through. The most amazing thing is I've been thinking about, I've been doing Christmas sermons for 32 years, and I always want to do a new one. I mean, you don't want stale bread out of a sermon file, right? Hi, friends. It's so good to have you. No, you don't want one of those. You want the real thing. And so I'm thinking, Lord, what do I preach about? And I didn't know until I sat down Wednesday at my desk and started looking at the scriptures. I said, God, I need a word, right? He's like, you need to talk about the widow Anna, 84-year-old lady. That's what I'm going to talk about. Because you want to talk about somebody with hope? That's her. When did she live? At all the bad times of world history. Her country, Israel, is overrun by the Romans and Herod. Who would want to live then? Makes you want to be happy that you're alive now, right? That's when she lived. Let's read about her because this is a lady full of messianic hope in hopeless times. Read her story, three verses. Yes, you, it's possible to talk for 30 minutes about three verses. What do we read about her? What does it say? And there was a prophetess. Oh, what was her job? You can talk. It's okay. What was her job? It's a prophetess. Um, What's her name? Anna. Who's her dad? Skip that. It's a Hebrew name. I don't know. Faniel, Faniel, Finiel, Fanuel, okay? Which is a Hebrew version of Finiel. Um, what, what tribe is she from? You got 12 options. Which one is she from? Asher, okay? Uh, how old was she? <laughs> she was advanced in years. I wrote in my notes when I was doing my uh, hermeneutical observations, how old is advanced in years? Scary thing to think about, huh? So uh, two days after Christmas, I turned 63. That's looking really young. It's the new 30. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, she's advanced in years. Uh, okay. Uh, and she'd lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage. And we, we keep on reading. There's more. And, and, and then she was a wid widow uh, to the age of 84. And she had never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Uh, there's more. And at, at the very moment, um, which we'll talk about what that is about, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him, the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, to who? To all those at, on the Temple Mount who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, i.e. the Savior Jesus. This is an amazing little story. Uh, what did we find from this life with this little widow, 84-year-old widow, in hopeless times geopolitically? And, and if you're shocked that a pastor would talk about politics, it's all through the Bible, isn't it? I mean, it is everywhere, um, all throughout the prophets. They're speaking, you know, and, and so when we look at her life, look at the geopolitical situation of the day, 
Herodian Empire, Roman Empire. She lives under both of them. And so hopeless national situation. But in that, we have Messianic hope from her life. So Messianic hope, main motif of the passage, in hopeless times leads to three things. What does it lead to? When you have hope in the Messiah Jesus, you get three things. What do you get? Power for daily living, praise from your mouth uh, to him, of course, of who he is. It just comes out of your mouth. And then proclamation. You're going to want to point other people to Jesus because you found him. I mean, I, you know, all I am basically is I'm a beggar who found the bread of life and I'm pointing other beggars to the bread of life. That's what you're doing. That's what she did. So let's look at her life because she's full of hope in hopeless times. Uh, and we're going to extract three concepts from her life from these verses. Number one, this lady full of hope. She had hope regardless of her family baggage. Well, that is just way too bad she had family baggage because our family doesn't have any baggage. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm talking about lying maybe next week. How many would say, with family coming over this, this week to eat, right? How many would say, okay, people are coming with baggage. They, they've got baggage. You got, you, how many say you have family baggage? Confession? This is a confessional booth. Yeah. And if you're going, we have none, you need to analyze more. You probably do have some baggage. She had family baggage. And there's sometimes you read verses uh, and, and, and tend to think, if we've got family baggage, then God probably can't use this. No. God specializes in using people with issues. He does. If the devil's going to tell you, oh, because of what your family's been like, alcoholics, drug addicts, whatever, there's no way he can use you. No, those are the kind of people he uses greatly. So let's read about her life. Now, we, we've got to prep the situation of what we're going to talk about, this lady that overcame her family baggage, by giving you a little history of the moment. So uh, I want to show you a picture of the Temple uh, Mount construction where she was. Because according to those scriptures, she lived at the temple night and day her entire, basically, adult life. Now, 33 days after Jesus was born, according to the Torah, Exodus 13, 2 in verse 12, and Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, uh, 33 days after the birth of, of the firstborn, they had to bring them to the temple to dedicate the child to God, Yahweh, and to also purify the mother from the, uh, from the process of, of birthing the child to make her clean and purified by the priest. And so uh, in the context of us running into uh, Anna in verse 36 is the, is the context of Jesus being carried to the temple by his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, uh, and they, uh, they enter the temple mount, uh, and this whole outer perimeter area, the court of the Gentiles, uh, had signs posted every you know, so many feet that if a Gentile, a goy, or a goyim, walked past that sign, you executed them. Talk about friendly worship. They walked past that, and they came through the, the eastern gate, uh, which the Kidron uh, River flows here, and the Mount of Olives is down over here. Um, and so they, they come through the Golden Gate, and they walk into the court of, of the women, uh, and they approach uh, the gate of Nicanor, which leads into the area where the man can go, where the priest uh, accepts sacrifices. So this place is packed with people. It's not like COVID times. This place is loaded with people. Jewish couples with little babies, they're bringing them to be dedicated to the priest. Mom needs to get purified, and there's tons of worshipers there. Uh, this is the scenario. And while Jesus uh, is there with his mom and dad, um, there's a man there. His name is Simeon. Uh, He's still looking at the context of Anna. There's a man there named Simeon. He's not a prophet. He's just an old godly man. He's, he's asked one thing from God his whole life. God, could I just see the Messiah? I know he's coming, could I just be there for the moment? This is like you saying, God, I know the rapture's coming. Could I just be part of it? 
Could it happen like soon? Yeah. He's been asking, can I see the Messiah? And so if you read Acts, uh, Luke chapter uh, 2, like 32 to 33, uh, God gives him his wish and answers his prayer in his old age. He allows him to see the Messiah. It gives him the revelatory word when Mary and Joseph walk by up to the Nicanor gate. And the Holy Spirit tells him, there goes the Messiah. If you were him, what would you do? Well, that's cool. What'd he do? He moseys right on over there. And he gives a word of prophecy. He's not even a prophet. God speaks to him. The Holy Spirit speaks to him. And, and, and in verse uh, uh, 33 and 34, he gives this prophecy over baby Jesus. It's not positive. He tells the mother and dad who are bringing the baby to dedicate the baby Jesus to uh, the Lord that this child, this redeemer, is, oh, Mary, he's, his death is going to pierce your heart. He's going to die, this little child, but he's going to be the savior. It's the prophecy. And no sooner than that come out of his mouth, there's a prophetess on the platform. Her name? Anna. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, a, a, a lady whose family line had baggage. How do I know that? Well, I'll show you. Uh, prophets in the Old Testament typically were men, but there were exceptions if you play, pay, play Bible trivia. Miriam, Exodus 15, was a prophet, prophetess. Uh, Deborah, J Judges 4, was a prophetess and a judge. Uh, Hulda, uh, of the Hulda gates that led into the uh, worship center of the Temple Mount from the south. Um, uh, Hulda, 2 Kings 22, 14, uh, was a prophetess. This is very interesting because the last prophet in the Old Testament was who? Malachi. Malachi. So for 420 years between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the 400 years of silence, other than John the Baptist coming forth, was an old woman, a widow, who was a prophetess, that God said, I'm going to take that one old woman who really loves me, that widow, and I'm going to bring a voice, a, a prophetic voice, uh, in the proximity of my son for all of Israel to hear. After 420 years, God chose an old senior citizen, Simeon, and an old lady, 84 years old, to be the voice to the nation. You want to turn a nation around? Who do you get? Well, we need 30-year-olds that have gone to Ivy League schools and et cetera. No, no, you don't. What's God do? Uh, I'm going to pick two old people. They're retired. You know? And if you're 84 right now, uh, you're still young, correct? They couldn't hear me. You're 84? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, back to my sermon. Now, let's think about her life. Uh, she's from what tribe? Asher, you have to ask yourself a question. How many tribes were there? Twelve tribes. Was this a good one? Eh, no, not really. Uh, I'll show you when they, uh, uh, after the, the battle to take the promised land, uh, and they divided the land up by lot, and God controlled the lot, uh, who got what land. Uh, they are up here in the north. They're like the Californians right here. Hey, they got the beach turf. Nice prime land. Owned by the Phoenicians. And if you read Judges, they were supposed to drive the Phoenicians out, but they didn't. They kind of joined the Phoenician culture, uh, which, uh, you know, they weren't really going to be there for their nation because they liked the coastal living. But if you read Gen uh, Genesis chapter 49, 20, uh, when Jacob uh, gives his, his prophecy to all the 12 uh, members of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, when he gives the, the promise to Asher, he, he prophesies that they would be a prosperous tribe and they will be known for royal dainties, like food that's off the grid. Like 
things that you, you really? Like the first time I was at Dallas with, on a sabbatical with Liz after many years of not being in Dallas because uh, I graduated from 85 from DTS. I asked Darren one day, hey, you're from, Dar- you're from Dallas. Like, where do I go for barbecue? Hard eight. I want to say, say what? Hard eight. That's where you go. He was right. You walk in the parking lot, mesquite stacked. You smell the, they're cooking it in the parking lot under this awning. You, it's the smell. It's just, I know it's hard because it's almost noon, but, um, you know, there's just some people just nail barbecue. That would be which state? And if you're from Louisiana, just pray about it. It's Texas has got it. See, if you wanted some of the best pastries and things, which tribe do you go to? Uh, you go to Judah. You didn't go to Gad. You didn't go to Ephraim. You didn't go to Manasseh. You went up north to Asher. But this tribe, uh, wow, they, they compromised big time. They didn't drive out the Phoenicians. Asher never provided a courageous spy when they checked out the land anyway in, in Numbers 13. Remember, 12 spies go out. They come back. God says, take the land of promise. And 10 spies come back and say, there is no way we can take the land. It's, it's walled to heaven, the fortresses, and giants live there like Goliath. There's no way we could take it. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb said, oh, we could totally take it. God's with us. You know, uh, Asher wasn't part of that courageous group. Uh, they had no deliverer. No mighty person came forward to deliver them during the period of the judges. Uh, and during the period of the kings, if you study them in First Chronicles chapter 27, verse 16, when David, the king, the great prototype of the Messiah, mentions the great tribes that came alongside him, he excludes them. Unbelievable. Her family line had all kinds of issues, spiritually speaking, because they weren't the most spiritual tribe for hundreds and hundreds of years. But then all of a sudden there's a widow who comes along and says, you know what? I don't care what happened in my family line. I'm going to love God above all things, no matter what. And she did. She was that kind of woman. I don't know. If you think about the baggage of your family line, whatever it is, divorce, alcoholism, whatever your family baggage is, uh, is God bigger than the baggage? Just a softball question, but it's, it needs to be hit. Is God bigger than the baggage of the family? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely he is. Uh, the Messiah is there to help you, and he wants to use people. And the interesting thing is, when he wants to use somebody greatly, he takes an 84-year-old widow from a tribe with baggage and says, I'm going to make that lady the voice to my people on the Temple Mount. Uh, does that, is there a one-to-one correspondence with you? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're 24 or 84. Same thing, there's hope regardless of what your past was because if you know the Messiah, there's hope. Number two, she had hope regardless of her personal adversities. Verse uh, 36 and 37 says she was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. This is, let's, let's think about the math here for a minute. A typical Jewish young lady got married at between 12 to 15 years old. If you think there is no way, and if you're in college right now and you're home for Christmas, you're thinking there's no way I'd get married at 20 or 22, etc. They, they got married young. My mother was engaged to my dad during the Korean War. I think he was 22 and she was 15. Nobody's saying anything. I always thought it was weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, got engaged a week after she turned uh, 16. Uh, they got married uh, and had a brief uh, honeymoon, uh, like, on a, like on a Saturday night. And uh, by the end of the weekend, he was gone off to the Korean War. And then they were married for 50-something years. So don't tell me. I mean, yeah, they were engaged back then. So let's just assume that she was engaged at 15 years old. 
It says she lived with her husband for seven years. So she would have died at what age? 20, he would have died when she was 22. She's now 84. How long was she a widow? How long was she a widow? 62 years. 62 years. You mean to tell me at 22 years old, she could not look around and said, there's got to be another good looking Jewish boy around here. She didn't. No, after her husband died, she must have said to herself, that was the love of my life. There will be another, another man like him. I'm going to give myself to Christ. That's what she did. That's what she did, as we're going to see. She looked past her personal baggage of her family line. She looked at her personal tragedy of losing her husband when she was 22, and she gave her life to God. Now, think about what she could have done. Could she have been angry at God for taking her husband in their 20s? Yes. Could she have been angry at God uh, for not hearing her prayers about healing him if she was praying for his healing? Sure. But she didn't. Here's a, here's a young woman uh, who understood Isaiah 45, verse 7, which says this. God speaking. God says, I, speaking the Lord, form light, I create darkness. I make peace, I create calamity. I, the Lord, I do all of these things. What does that mean? It means God is providential. If you're in a valley, is he there? Yeah. I mean, he's with you. He even made the valley. When you're on the mountaintop and things are amazing, is he there? Mm -hmm. He's in both places. So she says, regardless of what I, God brings my way, she like Job, if you read Job chapter one, when God takes everything away from him and he gets down and he says, the Lord has given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. That's a godly person. That, that's Anna, godly person. My, my personal baggage, not bigger than what God can do. My personal life tragedies, the loss of my husband in my twenties is not the end of my life. God's gonna use me greatly. That's the kind of hope that she had. That's an amazing woman. If you look at her life from another angle, uh, since Christ was born around 4 to 5 uh, B.C., uh, and she was 84 years old, uh, that means that she was probably born around 88 B.C. Think about what she saw in her lifetime that would have sucked the hope out of anybody's life. Think about what she saw. General Pompey entered Jerusalem after a three-month brutal siege uh, in 63 B.C. She was in her 20s when it happened. Didn't lose hope. She was there uh, when uh, Antigonus, the Hasmonean, with the Parthian help, drove out uh, uh, Herod and made him flee to, uh, to Rome uh, when he tried to set up a Hasmonean Jewish dynasty again. And she was there when Herod came back with uh, Roman troops and took the city again. She was there, and then she was there all throughout Herod the Great, his entire evil, bloodthirsty reign. She watched that power-hungry man grind people to powder, and she was there. If you could have said geopolitically, hopeless times, she said, oh, no, God is sovereign even over this, and I will serve him, and she did for 62 years. What was she doing? Three things. Number one, it says she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. She never left the temple. Translated, she was always at church. Did you hear me? She was always at church. So when the doors were open, where was she? Always in the lobby. She's, she's always there. She, she was in church. Why? Because she came to church to serve the living God and worship him every single day. Now, we know when you study Jewish history and the construction of the temple worship, uh, it did close. So this is a hyperbolic state. It's a figure of speech. Hyperbole, overstating the fact when you say it's raining cats and dogs, is it really? It's hyperbolic. And so, yeah, it's just saying she was there a lot. So if you went to the temple on Monday and you came in with your kids to go do some worship uh, and your, your son's like, hey, mom, who's the old lady? Uh, that's, that's Hannah. Man, she's always here. Yeah. So say your son's 12 years old. 
Say your son goes back when he's 35 with his wife. And he's walking in with his kids. And his kids say, hey, Yaakov, who's that? Uh, that's Anna. Who's she? She's a godly old woman. How often is she there? She's been there my whole life. Can you imagine this? If you're a widow right now, what you should you be doing other than what the governor told you you should do? <laughs> Don't you find this interesting? When politicians try to be theologians, it makes me smile. I think, really? Okay, so what have you been told a week ago? Well, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to be in church because God is everywhere. So just worship him there. You don't have to be together. Are you kidding me? I wanted to write him a personal note. Have you read the Bible? Because what did the Bible say? Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. In Greek text, it is not a suggestion to not be in church. Hmm. Uh, Anna would read that and go, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm in church. I don't care about COVID. I'm there. I've got the mask on. I've got the shield. I've got whatever. I'm there. Uh, you know, so we're being told in our culture, uh, you don't have to be there. And Anna would say, oh, yeah, you need to be there. The living God told us to come worship him. What's our government telling us? Well, it's okay if you're not there. Uh, no, it's not. You're commanded to be there. Because if you think about all the one another passages of the New Testament, love one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, confront one another, there's a whole list of them. Can you do it if you're not with one another? It's a softball question again. Yeah. No, you need to be there. And if we are the body of Christ, we're a true body, you have to be with the body to use your spiritual gifts to help each other. So, you know, yeah, you should be here. She was there. She, her, she lost her husband, and for 62 straight years, where was she? In church, worshiping the living God. What's the greatest place for a widow to be? Hold up at home? angry about what's happened in her life, lost her husband? No. Thanking God for the time with that man, or vice versa, and then giving their life to God. That, that's a, a woman of great hope. She said, I'm going to be in church worshiping God. Let, let the widows lead the way in our church of what we need to be doing in the days in which we live. What's the other two things that she did? She did two other things. What else did she do? Two more things. She did what? She was into fasting and into prayer. And the Greek word for prayer here, because there's a couple of Greek words for prayer, uh, is the word for petition. So if you wanted anybody to pray for you, where, where, where could you usually find her? Temple. And she probably stood in the same location because most really godly people have their own seat. <laughs> I've been in church all my life. You know, you sit down in the chair, some older person walks like, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, that's my, it's God ordained I sit there. I mean, they probably knew exactly where she was. And if you wanted somebody to pray for her, she had the connection, didn't she? And, and so the word there, she gave herself to worshiping God and to fasting and prayer, prayers. This was somebody you wanted praying for you. But it says she was into fastings. What does that mean? Well, there's two kinds of fasting. Absolute fasting and partial fasting. Absolute fasting is uh, absolute. No water, no food for X amount of days. You're showing God, I am totally serious about what I see and I need to, I need to abstain from food and drink to show you in prayer, I, I need a word from you. Esther, uh, when she thought the Jewish nation was gonna be wiped out by Haman, uh, she goes to Mordecai. Uh, in Esther 4.16, she tells Mordecai, the governmental structure here is so dysfunctional, they're going to try to take out the entire Jewish nation. We need to fast and pray. That's an absolute past, uh, fast. What should we be doing as a nation with much dysfunction? Fasting and praying. Apart from what we're told by the culture, 
fast and pray, God, show God we mean business, God then speaks. That's what she was doing. Uh, the other kind of fast is a partial fast. What Daniel did when, they, when his country was invaded by the Babylonians in 606, and they took the intelligentsia off to Babylon 600 miles away, never to see his friends and family again, hauled away. Uh, what's he do? He, first thing he does is he's, I'm not eating the king's food offered to idols. I won't do it. So he abstains from food to put God first. And he does this, even in Daniel chapter 10, he does the same thing. He abstains from food, a certain kind of food, uh, to show God he means business in his prayer life. And if you read Daniel 10, when he does this, he gets angelic revelation when the angel shows up. I mean, when you're fasting and praying, you're showing God, I mean business. See, he didn't just come to church. No, she came there to pray for people and to fast and pray to, to gain the power of God, to show God she was serious. What do we need? We need more Annas, full of the Holy Spirit, excited about the Messiah, and their geopolitical structure doesn't bother them at all. And you know what's most interesting? We, at that Nicanor gate, hanging over the top of it was a giant Roman eagle. Who put it there? Was it commanded by the Torah to be placed there? No, no. That was placed there by Herod the Great in honor of uh, a, a guy named uh, Agrippa who was uh, son-in-law to Caesar. It was there to, to goad the Jews. The politician goaded them in their faith and said, every time you go in to offer sacrifice, when you walk through the Nicanor Gate, you're gonna see my massive Roman eagle there to mock you. That's where Jesus was with Mary and Joseph. That's where Simeon was, that's where Anna was. But you know, they're looking at that going, you know what? The King of Kings is here and that eagle's coming down. They had great faith. See, one day the kingdoms of the world end and they're replaced by the Messianic King of Kings because he's coming back. I have to ask you just as a sidelight, what, what's the great thing that you're praying for this Christmas? You know, Simeon was praying, may I see the Messiah. You got Anna, another retired uh, saint on the Temple Mount, uh, absorbed with the Messiah and hears about the Messiah, sees these there, and she has great faith. And she said, what are you praying that you might see in your day and time? Last thing, when you look at this, this lady's life, she has hope rooted in God's providential guidance in her life. That even though she lost her husband, God was still in control of that. She would serve him till she died. And notice what happens in verse 38. It says, at that very moment, when Simeon was given a word of prophecy over baby Jesus, at that very moment, she just happened to come up. What did she do? She began giving thanks to God. And secondly, she began to speak of him to who? Everybody that was there. Place was packed. Imagine, she's 84 years old. I don't know how fast she moved. <laughs> whatever she had to do she's going around telling everybody i find this lady is just amazing in her in her faith she's a prophetess so she knows by the holy spirit that the word of prophecy from simeon is true and she knows from the holy spirit that that little baby right there with mary and joseph is the davidic king of kings the, the messiah would you move slowly or quickly over to said destination fast as your little legs get you there right and what would you do when you got over there? Give thanks. See, she's 84 years old. She's been at that Temple Mount and worship every day, but she saw that day and said to herself, there is gonna be no day like this day. That's the Messiah. She went over there and she gave thanks. Does it say what she gave thanks for? The answer is not yes. No, it doesn't say what she gave thanks for. She gave thanks to God that her eyes got to see the Messiah. Imagine 
She gets to see the eyes of the little baby that created eyesight. Think about it. She got to see the mouth of the little baby that spoke the cosmos and all of its specified complexity into being when it was nothing. She's looking at him. She gets to see the hands and the feet of the little baby that will one day bear the spikes on a cruel cross to, to die for her sins. She's looking at the Redeemer. What would you give thanks for? This is a rhetorical question demanding an audible response. If you were her, what would you give thanks for? I know you're behind a mask. What would you say? This is what you should be thinking about when you get home. What would I say? If that was Jesus standing there, what would I say thank you for? Wow. I wrote down a few things. Uh, I would tell him, thank you for being the promised seed. Prophesied in Genesis 3. Uh, thanks for sending the Redeemer, not just to Israel, but to me and to all mankind. Uh, thanks for not forgetting us and not forgetting your kingdom plan and this geopolitical mess. The king is coming. The king is there. You know, thanks uh, for sending the one who would bring truth and justice, as prophesied in Isaiah 9-6. Uh, thanks for hearing our, our prayers. Of all the times I fasted and prayed that you've answered my prayers, I'm seeing Jesus, Christos, Jesus Christ. I'm seeing him. Thank you for that, Lord. What an opportunity. My old eyes get to see that. And then she began to do what? Other than giving thanks to God, she told anybody and everybody, he's over there. That's the Messiah. That next couple standing up there, that's the Messiah. Imagine. People that say there's no proof to the Bible have not read the Bible. There are proofs beyond proofs to teach you. And one of the greatest proofs, as I told you last week, that the Bible is the word of God is the prophetic ability with precision concerning the Christ. She said, you want proof the Messiah is over there? I can give you all the proof. Is he from the line of Abraham? Check. Is he from the tribe of Judah? Check. Is he from the regal line of David? Check. Was he born in Bethlehem? Check. Go down the list. Messiah is right there. He, she pointed anybody and everybody to him. What does our nation need but people that point people to the Messiah? Because then there's hope, isn't there? Because if you keep focusing on the stuff in the here and now, that's hopeless stuff. But when you understand the king has come and the king is coming again, it puts wind in your cells and joy in your life, and you got a message, and that is to point people to him. So I would say who should probably lead the way in the evangelistic voice at Christmas in our body? Who should lead the way, contextually speaking? Widows. Widows. So if you're a widow today, I know we have many. I can see you. What should you be doing when you're gathering this week with the family? They may not all be saved. You are the one to give thanks to God and say to your children and your grandchildren, let me introduce you to the Messiah. And then may your joy, your passion, your excitement filter down to the rest of us. And may we all who know Christ be like Anna. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about because you're not a Christian, well, God is going to use all that we've talked about today to draw you to himself because he loves you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, for an old woman uh, who loved you in tragic times, lost a husband, uh, never had children, never heard grandchildren running around her house, all the things that she missed out on, uh, never gave a daughter away, and never went to a wedding, all those kinds of things, uh, huge losses, but... Uh, what she gave to you was way beyond all of those things because she with her own eyes got to see the Messiah and got to praise him face to face. What an opportunity. Might we be full of the hope and the joy of an Anna, uh, all of us, as we go into Christmas this week. 
We do live in what the world would think is hopeless times, but we who know you know we have awesome hope in the King of Kings because he is indeed imminently coming again, and may we point people to him readily. In Jesus' name, amen.